Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I have a couple of uh, quick announcements before I get into the sermon here. Uh, the first is that in your bulletin, there's information about something we're calling family time with the leadership team. And uh, one of the things that the leadership team this season uh, did this season was to really try to narrow down and focus in on what their job was as a leadership team. And the top priority of the leadership team, uh, they decided, we decided, was to stay in uh, constant connection with the congregation, to have a pulse on the congregation, and to uh, do communication well. And that's what that's about. Probably once a year or so, we'll be engaging in some sort of opportunity like that. Of course, there's always uh, the prerogative on your part to communicate to the leadership team. But this is just an official invitation for you to do that. Uh, so there's information about that in your bulletins. The second announcement is that today is the first Sunday of the month, which means two things. One, we're going to have communion after the sermon. Uh, but also, every first Sunday of the month, we take what we call a benevolence offering, and that's when we take a second offering as a way to help those in our community with acute financial need that's often surprising to them. And so 100% of what you give to the benevolence fund goes towards those in need. And if you look in your bulletin packet, there's an envelope in there just for that. And if you stick uh, whatever offering you have for that in the wooden boxes in the back, that would go towards that. Good, right? All right. Um, I <clears throat> totally changed the sermon this week in a sense that by the time I was done, I had three great sermons uh, out of this passage. And actually, if you... Uh, if I pointed it out, you would see immediately there's at least three distinct sections in here. I think next time I'm planning out a series in Romans, I may separate it out into three different sermons. But there's this first section about this idea of uh, Paul and the grace that was given to him. And then he talks about the diversity and the unity of the body. That's the church. And then he talks about these varying gifts. So by the time the sermon was done and I was preaching it to Susie, she said, Peter, you got to cut this out. And so she really helped me to figure out how to zone in on the main message that I want to carry with you today. I tell you that just in case you're frustrated that we're not going to get to all of the great things in here. Uh, we're going to get at least one of the three great sermons. All right. Okay. So there's Romans 12, this chapter. It marks a distinct turn in Paul's letter. And this, was when he, this is when he says all of this theology about God, all of this heady theory, thinking stuff that I've been trying to exposit and extract, uh, all of that we're going to put into action. And so chapter 12 all of a sudden becomes extremely practical. It's about our now living into this, these theological truths. Okay, and we begin to touch on this today. And actually the title of today's sermon, you might guess from the image behind me, is not influence, as it says in your bulletin. That would have been sermon number two. This is sermon number one. And so uh, the title of this sermon is Burnout. Let me begin with a story. By sophomore year in college, 
I got this distinct sense. I'm not sure where it came from. But one day I woke up and I decided that I wanted to lead my life rather than follow it. I had this desire to live an intentional life, to figure out who I was, who I was not. And I began to seek help. That was one of the first things I did. And I started with counseling with a pastor from a church. And I started talking to him about my childhood. And then I met with another pastor and I started meeting with a couple of other people. And it became a season of uh, sort of in-depth self-study. It led to, uh, post-college, to a season of therapists. I would say for a good decade or so, uh, I was in a lot of therapy. People say, therapy, what was wrong with you? Well, the same thing that's wrong with all of us. It was just uh, a way to try to be intentional about myself. So it was a season of therapist for years. And then over this last long season of life and ministry, I've settled into a rhythm of uh, a lot of intentional studying, a lot of mentors in my life, uh, doing a lot of mentoring myself with several mentees. And one of the cornerstones of my faith right now is what uh, they call a spiritual director. And it's somebody who's trained in helping me to listen to my life in a more intentional and acute way. And out of that, discern the voice of God. And so that's sort of my life these days. Study, mentors, mentees, and spiritual directors as far as spiritual formation for myself goes. The culminating experience uh, happened in the year 1996. That year, I was being mentored uh, by the head of this organization called uh, Church Resource Ministries, or CRM. And the man's name was David Miles. And he introduced me to this concept of a life map. And it was this long six-month process where I looked deep into my life from the moment I was born to the point that I was alive at that time. And I've been, I work on this life map at least once a year. Uh, since ni- I've been working on it since 1996. And what it allowed me to do was to pull out all of the significant events and people and circumstances that surrounded my life. These were things that happened, but this one was really significant. And then I was able to articulate what was important about that person, circumstance, or event. And then I was able to group all of these uh, significant uh, pieces into varying seasons. Well, this is what would be called sovereign foundations because I didn't choose these things. I didn't know what ethnicity I was going to be. I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know which schools I was going to go to. These were things beyond my control. And then there were some choices I made, but they were made in the spirit of uh, searching and seeking. And so I had this season... um, I forget what it was called now, but it was, it was a very formative season. And then I had the season where I was just sort of trying out some various ministry gifts. I was sort of uh, just throwing Hail Mary passes at the church, and they would tell me if it scored or not. And then I went through the season of uh, ministry maturing, where I was beginning to really hone in on my skills. And then there's uh, this long season of about 20 to 15 years where I'm actually making significant impact. 
And so that's where I would say I am uh, in the beginning stages of now. And this all started in 1996. It was an incredibly uh, 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 clarifying uh, season in my life. And what I saw during uh, this season of seeking therapy and seeking help with mentors and getting spiritual direction and creating this life map was I began to see a call on my life, and this is how I put it in my life map, I saw a call on my life to explain and show the gospel rather than to just tell the gospel. The way I wrote it in my map was, God is calling me to save Christians. Um, I also saw in there a call for me to help leaders. More than just to work in the system, I saw a call on my life to help improve the system as a whole. So not just work in the church, but on the church and help the leaders who are working on the church. And then finally, I saw a third call, a call to write. Um, And alongside that, on a theological level, I was able to see what I would call the sovereignty of God in my life. That all of these things happened and I made all these choices and life was such and such. But through it all, when I looked back on my life, I was able to see God's hand in it. I was able to have a kind of perspective that allowed me to say, God is alive and well and he's working in this world, all around me, and my goodness, he's also working in me and in my life. And I saw that he is a redemptive God, meaning that God's grace was at work, that God was able to uh, insert into my life, add to the list of ingredients, more than just things that happened to me, more than just my choices, the most powerful force actually was God taking something bad or taking something neutral or taking something good and using it for something great. That he was able to take something I regretted and use it for good to such an extent That if I looked back and God said, Peter, do you want me to undo that so that that never would have happened? I would say, well, I'm not so sure, God. Actually, just leave it. Because I see so many good things that came out of it. Like that season when you were really sick, do you want me to erase that? Well, it was really hard at the time. That season when she broke my heart, that was really, really painful. That season when I was lost, that was hard. But... You worked so many good things out of it. I just shudder to think who I would be if I hadn't learned the lessons that I learned during those difficult seasons and circumstances and relationships. I don't want to be that other person. So why don't we just keep it? That's what I would call God's grace at work. God's redemptive power in my life. And then it got even better. I saw through the sovereignty of God and through God's grace at work, I saw that God had a purpose that was beyond me. I don't exist just for me. And as uh, diminishing as that may initially sound, it was actually incredibly liberating. And it was very affirming to come to see in a very clear way through my own life pieces That as a whole, God was calling me to something far beyond myself. 
Now, I, I share this story with you not to say I did a good job because that's my whole point. I didn't do anything. I see God at work and I'm just simply telling you the story of God in my life from one particular angle. There's two points we're going to cover today. The first is grace given, which is a phrase from this passage. And then the second point is sound judgment, which is another um, phrase from this passage. Ready? Okay. First, grace given. I'm going to read verse 3 for us again. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, I want to ask us to zero in on this phrase, grace given. And the reason I want to do that is because I think the word grace is great, but it's not necessary to add to that the word given. Because think about this. If grace isn't given, what is it? It's not grace. Somebody can be gracious, but it's not grace to you if they don't share their graciousness with you. Right? So why does Paul, the Apostle Paul here, writing this letter, use the phrase grace given? And it's really important that you understand the intentionality of these two words together. Because later in verse 6, Paul uses the exact same phrase again. Here in verse 3, he uses it with reference to himself. For through the grace given to me, he says... And then in verse 6, he says, according to the grace given to us, meaning all of us. And he uses it in the exact same manner. What does the word given do to the word grace? For through, that's a hint right there, the word through. For through the grace given. So you get a sense of activity. You get a sense of direction here. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one. And I would submit to you today that the word grace given, it has with it a sense of purpose and direction and almost meaning to the concept of grace. That grace wasn't just given to Paul so that he could have grace. But grace was given to Paul so that he can now use this grace to exercise his position. For through the grace given to me, it's almost as if he was given a charge. And he is to exercise a certain kind of power or authority. And he's now drawing from this authority when he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to you. That is to imply, I'm not saying this of my own accord. I'm not saying this because I'm Paul. I'm not saying this because I'm a good guy. I'm not saying this because I'm a charming personality. I'm saying this by the grace given to me. Somebody bestowed on me a charge. And it's by that charge, by that imperative, that I now speak To you. Somebody gave Paul something to carry out. To carry out an action. 
And so I would say that this phrase, grace given, is a softer equivalent of the word that we, a word that we talked about before, which is the word power. Somebody gave Paul power. Somebody gave Paul some position. And he's saying, I have to now leverage this position. I have to exercise this power to say something. And here's what I want to say. And this is just a little side note. But every position, therefore, if grace given is the equivalent of authority, power, or position, I would say that every position exists to serve a function. That's why positions exist, to do something. Right To be a steward of a responsibility. It's not just so that somebody in that position can sit higher or look pretty or have something for themselves. But they, that position, in that position or role, exist to serve the very body that creates that position. And so the Bible says that leadership is actually all about serving. And so Jesus says, if you want to be great... Learn to be the servant of all. And it's what we call servant leadership. But it really is redundant to say that. Because to be a leader, by virtue of what it is, it exists to serve other people. And so we, you know, sometimes we try to think about this in society differently. We say, well, this this person is a public servant because he holds a public office. I would say all offices, all positions are positions of servant leadership. And so here we have, I think, a reminder of a previous chapter. Remember, we defined position uh, or power as ability plus opportunity plus obligation. That when you have power, it means that there's ability and there's opportunity and there's an obligation on your part. And Paul here, when he says, for through the grace given to me, what he's doing is he's exercising power. But you notice the word grace is there. It's not power given to me, but it's grace that's given to me. When I was uh, going through this life map exercise with David Miles, uh, the map was so powerful for me at the time because there I was, uh, a 20-something young person. I was trying to figure out my life. And basically, I had a lot of things going on on an internal level. And I was trying to find some sort of meaning or peace within myself. You know, there's a lot of 20-something angst that was in me. But what the map did, as I began to see the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and uh, and and the charge of God, the purpose of God in my life, it really helped me to transition from being in a place of seeing and seeking my personal survival, personal peace, personal health, and personal happiness, transition from that to a place of ministry and a sense of call. Now, when I say ministry, I'm not talking about my being a vocational minister or a pastor. I'm talking about the truest sense of the word minister, which just means to give. That I exist not for my personal happiness. That might be a byproduct. And it might even be an indication that I'm in the right 
I'm serving people in the right way. But the purpose really is to serve. And so through my life, I began to see a call on my life. You know what the word call is? The the Greek word is the word kaleo. And it literally just means to call or to invite. And so people, when they were getting married, they called people, they invited people. They kaleoed people to weddings. And so when I use the word call, I just, I'm just saying that I sense that there is an invitation on God's part for me to say yes to this way of living where it wasn't going to be just me trying to survive or to be happy or to be healthy, but to connect with God and to participate with God in what He's doing, but doing that through my personality, through my life. So that was really a powerful transition I was able to make. I saw the pieces of my life. I saw the traumatic childhood that I had. I saw my immigration experience from South Korea to the United States in 1981. I saw the cultural disorientation that marked my life for 20 years, where I didn't know who I was and who I wasn't in a cultural sense, where I I didn't have a group, uh, ethnic group that I felt was my home ethnic group. I saw God take these pieces of my life and redeem it. Use it for good. And God saying, Peter, I want you to use all of this negative, these negative traumatic experiences in your life for good in serving others. And through the grace given, if I could um, use that phrase for myself, through the grace given to me, I was able to reorient my life and to have a new perspective, a new place from which to think about my life in the whole and in its pieces. I was able to have clarity or good thinking about who I was and what the purpose of my life was. That is to say that the grace given to me allowed me to have sound judgment. So what does Paul mean by sound judgment? We see this again in verse 3. Let me read it again for us. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Paul uses this word grace given rather than power authority, as I said, to underscore this idea of sound judgment. Because according to Paul, sound judgment begins with an understanding of grace. That the two are intricately linked. That if you don't understand that it's God's grace at work in your life, that God is sovereign in your life, And that God created you for a purpose beyond yourself. If you don't understand that, you're not able to have sound judgment. We'll get into what that means in a second here. Sound judgment about yourself or your life. The word sound judgment here is the Greek word sophreneo. Did you hear the word Sophia in there? Do you know what Sophia means? This is kind of common knowledge in some circles in the English language. But Sophia is the word wisdom. That's that's the word wisdom. And so sophreneo means wise thinking. 
It means that not just wise as in you have a beard and you're able to stroke it and have deep thoughts, but wise as in what you're thinking is true. There's an accuracy and a connection to reality that you have. There's something that is deeply true and real and correct about your judgment. That's Sophia. It's not just some deep thinking that it sounds esoteric and probably true enough for the radio, but you can't really quite nail it down. Sometimes I think we think about wisdom that way. But this is very practical. It's saying, no, no, no. To have sound judgment, to have clear thinking about who you are. And the way you have clear, true, real thinking about who you are, Paul says, it starts with grace. That you are not your own. That you don't, you don't just exist by happenstance. That God loves you, not because you're loving, but because He's loving. That you don't have rights, really, but you have a purpose, and you have a Creator, a Father who loves you, and is protective over you. And if you have a Father that's that way, you don't need rights. That you exist, then, with His purpose, as the centerpiece of your life, around which everything else revolves, that you exist to serve. And so this idea of having this call begins to serve as a context for myself, for yourself. It serves as a context for relationships, for while you rest, work, and play. It makes marriages, it makes Relationships with family members. It makes, it makes relationships with your coworkers. It makes everything appropriate and proportionate. You don't have to extract all of your meaning and happiness and joy and self-worth out of other people around you, out of the work that you do. You're freed up to say, none of that matters anymore. God loves me to the very bottom and to the top. There's nothing I have to try to extract out of life anymore. I'm, f- I'm a free agent to serve, to give. Now I'm able to not be distracted by survival. I'm able to see persons and and connect to stories that are happening all around me because God is always working all around me. And I want to connect to that. I'm supposed to connect to that. I'm made to connect to that. And you don't have to fret about all of the pieces of your life that are broken, that don't make sense. Because God's grace has been given to you. God's power has been at work within you and now wants to work through you. And the things that don't make sense right now, just give it five years. It'll make sense in five years. Those things that are killing you right now are going to be the very lifelines of your life. And Paul is able to say that my weakness is strength, actually, because of God's grace. He says, really what I'm trying to tell you is what Paul is saying here is that if you think too highly of yourself, you don't have sound judgment. You don't have this grace understanding of yourself. Therefore, you have to think highly of yourself because nobody else is. You have to say, oh, self-esteem because nobody else is esteeming you. I need self-worth because you don't see how worthy you are to God. 
Or you have to be beautiful because you don't realize God created you. If you think too highly of yourself, then you're stuck on yourself and you're missing the point of you. Why are you you? Why do you exist? What's the point? Well, you got to start with grace. If you don't, mm, I'm high. Or if you just really realize you, you went for it, but you didn't make it, then you think too low, lowly of yourself. I'm bad, I'm horrible. That's also really unsound thinking about yourself. That kind of self-loathing or self-beating up, that's not from God. That doesn't start with grace. Either you think too highly of yourself or too lowly, you're still stuck on yourself. And you're still missing the point of you. You got to start with grace. And really what I'm trying to say, you're not special. Because you don't have to be special. Because all of us are special. Um, This is one of my favorite YouTube clips on the planet. I don't know if other planets have YouTube. Probably not. Uh, But there's this uh, town near where I used to live in Boston for seven years. Uh, There's this town called Wellesley in Massachusetts. Wellesley is a very well-to-do town. um, And uh, they have a high school teacher named David McCullough. And uh, what I really would do if I had all the time in the world is to um, play you the entire speech, which is about 12 and a half minutes long. I've condensed this speech uh, down to about three and a half minutes. And uh, what I want to do is I want to read you this redacted version of this, his speech because it's so to the point. And uh, I was listening to it. I listened to it about three times this week preparing for this message. And uh, I cried each time I found myself tearing up. And uh, so I want to read it to you because it's really worth your time, I think. It's a little bit, it's going to feel a little bit long because there's a lot of words in it, but it's really to the point. Okay, David McCullough, if you're taking notes, to Wellesley High School, uh, who are graduating, it's his commencement speech. The title of the speech is You Are Not Special. You are not special. You are not exceptional. Yes, you've been pampered, cassetted, devoted upon, helmeted, bubble-wrapped. Yes, capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bottom, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you, and encouraged you again. You've been nudged, cajoled, wheedled, and implored. You've been feted and fawned over and called sweetie pie. Yes, you have. And certainly we've been to your games, your plays, your recitals, your science fairs, and absolutely smiles ignite when you walk into a room and hundreds gasp with delight at your every tweet. And now you've conquered high school. And indisputably here we all have gathered for you the pride and joy of this fine community. But do not get the idea you're anything special, because you're not. Across the country, no fewer than 3.2 million seniors are graduating about now from more than 37,000 high schools. That's 37,000 valedictorians, 37,000 class presidents, 92,000 harmonizing altos, 340,000 swaggering jocks, 2,185,967 pairs of Uggs, Even if you're one in a million on a planet of 6.8 billion, that means there are nearly 7,000 people just like you. 
And consider for a moment the bigger picture. Your planet, I'll remind you, is not the center of its solar system. Your solar system is not the center of its galaxy. Your galaxy is not the center of the universe. In fact, astrophysicists assure us the universe has no center. Therefore, you cannot be it. In our unspoken but not so subtle Darwinian competition with one another, which springs, I think, from our fear of our own insignificance, which is a subset of our dread of mortality, we have of late, we Americans, to our detriment, come to love accolades more than genuine achievement. We have come to see them as the point, and we're happy to compromise standards or ignore reality if we suspect that that's the quickest way or the only way to have something to put on the mantelpiece, something to pose with, crow about, something with which to leverage ourselves into a better spot on the social totem pole. No longer is it how you play the game. No longer is it even whether you win or lose or learn or grow or enjoy yourself doing it. Now it's, so what does this get me? As a consequence, we cheapen worthy endeavors and building a Guatemalan medical clinic becomes more about the application to Bowdoin than the well-being of Guatemalans. It's an epidemic, and in its way, not even dear old Wellesley High is immune, one of the best of the 37,000 high schools nationwide. And I hope you caught me when I said one of the best. I said one of the best so we can feel better about ourselves, so we can bask in a little easy distinction, however vague and unverifiable, and count ourselves among the elite, whomever they might be, and enjoy a perceived leg up on the perceived competition. But the phrase defies logic. By definition, there can only be one best. You're it or you're not. The fulfilling life, the distinctive life, the relevant life is an achievement, not something that will fall into your lap because you're a nice person or mommy ordered it from the caterer. You'll notice the founding fathers took pains to secure your inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Quite an active verb, pursuit. Like accolades ought to be, the fulfilled life is a consequence, a gratifying byproduct. It's what happens when you're thinking about more important things. Climb the mountain not to plant your flag, but to embrace the challenge. Enjoy the air and behold the view. Climb it so you can see the world, not so the world can see you. Go to Paris to be in Paris, not to cross it off your list and congratulate yourself for being worldly. Exercise free will and be creative, not for the satisfactions they will bring you, but for the good they will do to others, the rest of the 6.8 billion, and those who will follow them. And then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human experience that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. The sweetest joys of life then come only with the recognition that you are not special because everyone is. I don't know if you caught that, but my voice started cracking at the end there again for a fourth time this week. So what do you think about this? That sound judgment begins with grace, with a humble but empowering look, clear look at ourselves, that we are made by God to serve and to give of ourselves. Acts 27, 26 to 28 says this, From one man he made all the nations that we should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him 
and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we we live and move and have our being. So grace given is to have sound judgment. And sound judgment, then, is to receive this grace. Is to say yes to the grace that has been given to us. To say, yes, I am not special on my own, and I don't want to try to be. Application. I have one application for us today, and this part is pretty cool, so I don't want you to miss it. In February, on February 27, 2014, uh, APS uh, organization, the Association for Psychological uh, Studies, uh, put out a new research that they've been working on for a while on the idea of burnout. Okay, and, he, and the research says burnout is an, a real thing. It happens. And it's a response to stress in our lives, whether it's traumatic stress all at once or it's repetitive stress. But they say that there's basically three kinds of burnout, not just one. And here are the three. Overload burnout. It means that you're just working to exhaustion too much. So it's burnout that results from quantity of work, too much work. And one of the symptoms, primary symptoms of somebody who's experiencing overload burnout is you begin blaming the workplace. Okay, so if, if you are somebody that's finding yourself really upset at the workplace, think about overload burnout. The second type of burnout, APS says, is boredom burnout. Okay, and this is what happens when there's a lack of personal growth or development in the workplace. And stress results from that. I didn't know that. And one of the key symptoms of boredom burnout is when you begin distancing yourself from work and you become cynical about work. So there's a kind of distancing and cynicism okay, that laces uh, your um, dialogue about work. The last kind of burnout is called worn-out worn out burnout. That's hard to say. Worn-out burnout. And it's what happens when you're unable to move actual barriers, move past actual barriers at work. There's real obstruction, and it's frustrating to you. And you want to solve the problem, but you just can't. It's a systemic thing that's beyond you. It's bigger than you, or it's a colleague that you can't touch. And then you feel this kind of stress that results from this immovable barrier, this unsolvable problem. And this symptomizes in your attitude of abdication and lack of motivation. You don't have hope. Okay, so these are the three kinds of burnout. Verse 6 to 8, however, in this uh, passage, Paul says, When you are exercising your gifts according to the grace that's given to you. Okay, remember that's verse 6. Paul using the word grace given again. When you are in touch, you have sound judgment about who you are and how God is redeeming your life. When you have faith in that, that you're able to see the sovereign and loving and gracious God at work in your life. And out of that sound judgment, that clear thinking about the self. 
when you have that, and he says you have these three things then that mark the symptoms you bear as a servant of God. And he says, one, you give with pure motives. The Greek word there just means one, to be of one mind. It's like pure gold. Imagine being able to give with pure motives. No ulterior motives, no strings attached, no baggage afterwards. Just purely, you're able to give as a gift. Second, Paul says, you're able to lead with diligence. Imagine you have a diligence to your leading, that power doesn't corrupt you. You know, we we see this. As soon as people get into positions of leadership, they have to fight, begin fighting the battles with privilege and power. And it's very hard to do because by nature, it's blinding. You don't see it when it's happening to you. Right? But imagine leading with diligence. Imagine our servants, our public servants. Imagine your pastors. Imagine leaders in, all around you who are able to maintain diligence. They work hard for you. They want to serve you. Isn't that beautiful? And lastly, when you're showing mercy, when, you're able, when you have to absorb all of the you know, idiosyncrasies of other people around you and the frustrations of the system, there's a cheerfulness to you. Mercy with cheerfulness. This is how verse 7 and 8 end with these three things. Pure motives, diligence, and cheerfulness or joy. How opposite are these three things to overload burnout, boredom burnout, and worn out burnout? I want to submit to you today that the APS will say burnout results from stress. I want to say to you, where does stress come from? Stress comes from not having sound judgment. Why don't you have sound judgment? Because you don't recognize the God of grace in your life who's been at work. And you're trying to extract meaning and purpose and worth and value and survival and happiness out of your life, out of yourself, out of your friends. And it's going to kill you and it's going to kill everybody around you. And here God is inviting you or calling you to a different way of living. One filled with pure motives, with diligence and joy. The main lesson I conclude here with a story. The main lesson that I learned, uh, that I'm still learning, I think. uh, I think this is the final and truest lessons that I can learn from all of my self-processing and life map and all of that. Is that myself and the work that I do, it's not about serving people actually. That I'm not special and none of you are special. Special is not a category for us anymore. It's not a category for me. And this was a really helpful reminder for me this week. That I do what I do because Jesus loves me. And I serve him actually. He's the one who created me. He's the one who died for me. He's the one who has a vision for my life. And he's the one to whom I will answer. And he's the one who will put his hand on my back and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. So helpful for me to serve all of you. The best way to serve all of you as your pastor is for me to say, I don't serve you. 
when I do what I have to do to work on my sermons and lead this church, it's not for you. It's not for the leadership team. It's not for a paycheck. You know how freeing that is for you and for me? But I do this because Jesus loves me. Paul says this, and I I, uh, added a couple of verses from two different books here uh, of Paul's letters. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Amen.